Welcome to the Think Theism Podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode. I'm Zach. I'm Andrew. And today we're going to be talking about a very simple, straightforward, easy-to-answer question. And that is, Andrew, is the Bible reliable? Well, yes, Zach, it is reliable. See you next episode. Okay, obviously not. We need to make a couple of distinctions, right? Yeah, there are a couple of different issues that we can discuss that are related to this topic. First being, is the body of the text historically reliable? Um, But the second issue, which is what we're going to talk about today, is has the text been transmitted in a way that we know what the original text said, even though we have texts now that have been copied and copied and copied for 2,000 years? That's right. It's important to remember that whenever we talk about the Bible, we're referring to a large collection of books, not all of the same genre and definitely not all from the same time period. So whenever we're discussing the Bible, we're going to be focusing in very specifically on the documents of the New Testament. Because another thing that's important to remember is that the Old Testament and the New Testament collections of books, respectively, have very different histories behind them. First of all, obviously, they describe different periods of time, but they also have a different source of transmission. The Old Testament is worlds away from the way that the documents of the New Testament were transmitted. For example, in the Old Testament, you have several high liturgical books that describe uh, the history of Israel and several books of prophecy, for example, and you have several poetic books and uh, books of the writings and things of that nature. Whereas in the New Testament, it's structured primarily on you have four historical documents, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then you have a collection of letters, the Pauline epistles, the Catholic epistles, and then Revelation is typically considered an epistle as well. So, Andrew, could you uh, set up a little bit on whenever we're talking about the transmission of the text versus the history, can you elaborate a bit more on that and discuss what exactly we mean when the New Testament was transmitted? So the issue here is that you know, we know that the texts of the New Testament were written between 50 A.D. and 100 A.D. or so. Hmm. We know this you know, pretty well. There are obviously more liberal scholars that put dates on, on certain books that are outside of that range. But even if we can just talk about you know, the subset that are known even by liberal scholars to be within that range, we can discuss those. So we know that they were written you know, almost 2,000 years ago. So the question is... How accurate is the text that we have today? How well does that compare to the original manuscripts? So there's a lot of things that can happen to a text as it's copied many, many times. As someone is copying, obviously these were copied originally by hand, so it's very easy to skip words, to accidentally insert words, to skip whole lines, to insert lines, to misspell words. And these are just unintentional errors that are introduced into the text. There's a whole additional set of errors that can be introduced if somebody is intentionally trying to manipulate the text, which of course is the most serious concern is do we have the text as it was original or was it altered by the church? There are a lot of people that often will point, for example, in the history of the Quran to the, the collection by Uthman, where all the Qurans were collected together, these various different collections, and then they were burned up and one true copy of the Quran continued on. But it's very interesting to note that, like you were saying, even though there were changes that occurred in the text, 
there was no type of magisterial collection and burning of books for the New Testament. It's important to remember that the historical context is extremely important. The early church was a persecuted minority. They did not have any type of power. And because of that, they didn't have any type of large buildings, scriptoriums as they were called, until several hundreds of years later. And so the text was very, it was sort of organic and being spread all over the place. Because of this historical environment, it allows for something very interesting to occur. Since there's what's called an uncontrolled transmission of the text, and that means that those intentional changes that you were talking about are very, very easy to spot due to geographical distance. So for example, if someone wrote a letter, let's say the book of Ephesians, and it was sent off to various disparate areas in North Africa and sent off to Italy, perhaps over to Rome, as it was spread around, different copies were made here and there and here and there. And so if you, you can compare, for example, a manuscript from, say, Egypt with one that is in Rome. Since they're separated by so much geography, you can compare and see those two together, and you can see how much has changed over the time. And what's interesting to note is that these variations, whenever we collect all the documents together, we get lots and lots of variation, roughly 400,000. So, Andrew, 400,000 is the standard number, but you're still saying that the New Testament is reliable. Yeah, so one of the very important things to remember is that we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. So if you think about that, we have 5,000 different copies of the New Testament, ranging from scraps a few verses long to entire copies of the entire New Testament. To say there's 400,000 errors, when you take into account that there are spelling errors, for example, names um, like Moses in Greek, can be spelled at least three or four different ways that I've, I've seen it written. So when you're talking about 400,000, so divide that among the 5,000 manuscripts. Yeah, another way of looking at the numbers is the little scraps of paper that you were talking about. Those, they're not all the same size, but if we sort of control and normalize it, we have about 1.1 million pages across those 5,000 manuscripts. And whenever we look at that, you're talking about over a million pages with roughly half a million variations, you're looking at only one variation every two pages or so, which is not as big and scary as it sounds. And also, like you were mentioning, the overwhelming majority of these variations are usually trivial. They're spelling differences. Uh, you can, for example, Moses, or spelling John with one N as opposed to two Ns, or perhaps someone got distracted and spelled it with three Ns, perhaps. These sort of innocuous variations make up the bulk, the vast majority. In fact, do you, Andrew, do you know what the single most popular variation is? I don't know, actually. It's called the movable new. So in this, we have a perfect parallel in English. Whenever we have nouns that start with, start with a vowel, if we're going to use the word a in front of it, we'll typically put an n. So rather than saying a apple, we'll do an apple. Well, Greek has something very similar to this called a movable new. That is the single most popular variation. I can't remember the exact numbers, but out of all the variations... That's the most popular one, is just saying a apple versus an apple. So that seems to me virtually innocuous. Yeah, so if I, if I remember correctly, once you've accounted for all of the spelling errors, line omissions, line duplications, and other sort of innocuous errors that are very easy to control for and to recognize as errors that, that don't really matter to the meaning of the text, that we're only left with maybe a 1,000 or 2,000 errors in the entire New Testament where the meaning of the text is in some way influenced, but we don't know for certain which meaning is cor which reading is correct. Yes. The term that I think you're looking for is both viable and significant. So there are some variations 
that exist that are not viable. Uh, I believe there's a passage in Galatians, for example, where Paul says, let the joy of your heart or feel joy within your heart or something to that effect. And there's a variant uh, reading that says, feel the joys within your horse. It just doesn't make any sense. That Yes, that is a legitimate variation, but clearly that's not even close to viable. So whenever we pare it all down, and this is in the field of textual criticism, there are lots of very intelligent scholars that have pared through and sifted through all of these variations. After all the filtration, there are really just a handful, about 200 or so variations that are significant in that they change the text, and they're also viable in that we're not sure which one is the original reading. Then, of course, we can even consider, you know, once we've looked at all the more significant differences in the text, even among those, although these verses might change the meaning, these differences might change the meaning of a verse, the the real question is, does it have a wider theological significance? Are these changes in meaning significant enough that they actually would alter the theology that we get from the New Testament? For the most part, we see that none of these, absolutely none of these verses and these variations change any of what are called the cardinal doctrines of Christianity. So a a way to express this is you can have two different texts in your hand, and maybe one is a little bit variant than the other one. You're going to be able to derive the same Christian doctrines that have been taught for all of church history from both of those texts. You're still going to get the divinity of Christ. You're still going to get the bodily resurrection. You're still going to get the existence of God, for example. But the difference, and you're also going to get salvation by grace alone through faith alone. But the difference may be that your list of supporting verses might be different in those different texts, depending on the way that they're worded and the emphasis that is put on different themes. A good example of this might be to look at the King James version of the Bible versus um, maybe the NAS or NIV version. And the reason this is relevant is because these two texts, the, the more modern translations and the King James, are based on a different set of initial manuscripts. So a lot of these um, divergent readings that we're talking about, the NASB or the NIV will choose a different reading from the King James and so a fairly large proportion of these variants are actually have two different versions listed between the King James or the NIV. But the vast majority of Christians today would say that whether you're reading the King James version or the New International version, you're still going to come to essentially the same Christianity. In fact, we can give a, an extremely explicit example in the KJV. Uh, whenever we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity or the equal divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one of the most well-known textual variants is what's called the Kama Ioannium, and it's in 1 John, where it says, in heaven there are three that bear witness to this truth, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's the KJV reading. Now, that's a very good proof text for the doctrine of the Trinity. However, in pretty much all modern texts today, that text in 1 John reads, there are two that bear witness in heaven, the water and the blood. And that's very different. They are, they're not making the same point. If you pick up an NASB, you're still going to be able to defend the equal divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And if you pick up a KJV, the same doctrine as well. The difference is you're not going to have that First John passage if you use an NASB, whereas you might if you were using a KJV. We've talked a lot about these variations, but we haven't given very many examples. So let's take one really good example called the Pericope Adulterae. It's in John chapter 8. This is the famous story where Jesus finds a woman, she's caught in adultery, and she's brought out to be stoned, and Jesus says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And everyone just dropped their stones and left. 
And he turned to the woman and he said, he said, woman, where are your accusers? Go and send no more. Now, what's the problem with that, Andrew? Isn't that such a wonderful, inspiring story? In fact, it, it was in the Passion of the Christ. I saw it. The problem is that most textual scholars today do not believe that that passage was originally in the gospel, which leads us with the problem of, you know, how, how do we take this passage that seems to have been a later insertion into the text? Obviously, that's going to make a very big difference in how we treat the passage and whether we treat it as scripture that has real authority. Here, we need to make a distinction between what we consider to be inspired scripture and what may or may not be historical. I think it would be perfectly consistent to say that that is an historical event, that it did happen, or at least something similar happened to it. In fact, John in his gospel says that Jesus did many other actions. But what we can't say is that it was in the original text. Now, Andrew just alluded and said that many scholars today think it wasn't in there, but let's give a little bit of reason for that. Part of the reason is whenever we look at these manuscripts, there are several manuscripts. The earliest and best manuscripts that we have, those would be, for example, Codex Sinaiticus, which is dated to about 330 AD, does not have this story in John. Many of the other codices and other manuscripts, if they do have this story, it pops up in different areas. In other words, you'll find it stuck in Matthew over here and stuck in Luke over here, and then it'll be in John. It's in John in most of the manuscripts. And so textual critics tend to point out that if you have a story that's looking for a place, it's probably not original. Now, here's a question for you, Andrew, though. This seems to be an intentional change. It seems to me that you don't accidentally write a story like you might accidentally misspell a word or accidentally skip a line. It seems to me that a scribe intentionally put this in here. So is that problematic in any way? Well, potentially. So certainly the reliability of the text does not rely on the reliability of every scribe who copied every copy of Scripture. The fact that we have 5,000 copies enables us to weed out the instances where people have added things. But still, it's not necessarily certain that this was intentionally added, at least with the intention to deceive people or something like that. Mm. There are a lot of different ways that this could be added. One way would be that at some time in the past, a scribe who was studying the text and maybe who had some extraneous information made a marginal notation of this story, which was then later unintentionally inserted into the text by a, a scribe copying the scriptures later. You also have to consider the fact that in the very earliest time of the church, these letters were not necessarily treated as scripture. So it may have been that somebody made a copy of the scripture, inserted this story in for whatever of their own reasons, not intending to pass it on as scripture, but just because they knew this additional story and they thought this would be a good place in the text to use it. Now, Andrew, you mentioned something I want to pick up on. You said that an earlier scribe may have included a marginal note that a later scribe then included into the text. This is very important. Scribes, for the most part, tended to be conservative with the text. In other words, if they were copying something down and they saw a notation or they saw some type of marking and they didn't know whether it was a marginal note or if it was a scripture that someone had skipped and they were trying to add it back into the text, if a scribe didn't know, most of the time they would just include it into the text rather than excluding it. Because if you're a scribe and you're copying down text, which is worse, to accidentally include a little extra information or to cut out information and lose it over time. When you track the New Testament, over time you can see that they get, it gets slightly longer. I think from the year about 300 to the modern day, the text has grown by about 1 or 2%. And you know, the majority of that 
happens to come from people being pious. So I'll give you an example. People, as Christianity progressed, people tended to be more pious as they were writing in the text. And so you would read, for example, in Mark, where it says, speaking of Jesus, and he went down to the shore. And then the next scribe will say, well, I don't want to refer to him as he because it's kind of ambiguous in this area. Let's say it was Jesus. And so then he, it's an intentional change, but it's a clarifying change. And it says, and Jesus went down to the shore. Well, then the next scribe says, well, Jesus, that's kind of, I mean, that's his name, but that's a little bare bones. Let's, let's spice it up a bit. And he says, and the Lord Jesus went down to the shore. So now you've added in a word. And then let's say it keeps going on and on and on until eventually you get some scribe who says, and the Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah, Savior of our people, the true Son of God, the only begotten, walk down to the shore. You know, I mean, that's a hyperbolic example. But those types of things did happen, and that sort of increasing piety is what accounts for the majority of the growth of the text. But So, Andrew, if you had to sort of just summarize the key points of whenever we say, is the Bible reliable, what would you say is the key? So the first point is that there are over 5,000 Greek manuscripts. And something that we didn't mention before is that in addition to those 5,000 Greek manuscripts, there's approximately 20,000 manuscripts of early translations, not to mention about half a million citations by early people in the church who were citing individual verses. So we have an, an enormous amount of material to work with when we're trying to, to determine what the original text was. Secondly, although we, we use this scary number, 400,000 variations of the text, that number is not nearly so scary when you weigh it against the number of manuscripts. There are more variations in the New Testament text than any other ancient document because there are orders of magnitude more manuscripts of the New Testament than there are any other ancient document. Lastly, the science of textual criticism is highly advanced. There's been 2,000 years of people trying to figure out what the best readings of Scripture are. And especially today, we have such easy access to such a huge number of manuscripts, and the science has progressed so far that we can be very, very certain that our text is reliable. Although there may be a, you know, a few hundred places where we're not certain of the wording, it has zero effect on the theological content of the New Testament. Just to build off of what you're saying there, if, like you said, we live in the internet age and we have access to so much information that's out there, obviously here at Texas A&M, if you're a student, you have access to the Texas A&M library. But outside of that, there are all types of free resources. For this topic, the top recommendation is a fellow named Daniel B. Wallace. He is probably, I would say, one of the top 10 textual critics alive in the world today. And he runs what's called the Center for the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, or CSNTM.org. And that is our top recommendation for the New Testament. With that, we will awkwardly conclude Dubstep Now.